Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's guest is Tony Lovato from Mest. These guys are one of my favorite 2000s pop punk bands, although they're still around. So I guess they're technically a 2020 pop punk band. They actually just put out a record by the time you hear this. It should be available everywhere, anywhere on all formats. If you like their old stuff, check it out because it's pretty much exactly what you'd expect from Mest in a good way. Anyway, I've been a big fan of these guys basically since like the first album. But what I wasn't expecting is how much of an insightful guy Tony is. You might think that because they're kind of a, you know, upbeat, somewhat goofy kind of pop punk band, or at least were in the beginning, that maybe that's all he is. But if that's what you thought, you were very wrong. Turns out from this conversation, as you will see, we talk about his history in the music business, going through the major label system, which, you know, very few people that I know have been part of. Maybe like him and Bo from Seosin, and I don't know, it's really about it that I can think of. So it was interesting to hear about that and why he has chosen to stay in the music business as long as he has, because he's a smart guy. He could do lots of other things with his life. So we talk about that as well as kind of just all the things that he's seen change in the 20 years or so that he's been in the business. But before I get into it, I wanted to mention a couple things. Number one, if you like the show, it really helps us if you share it on social media because the podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and stuff really don't do a lot to help get the word out about podcasts. So if you share it on social media, tag me, tag the guest, tag Deanna, that really helps us get out the word. And second, if you really like the show, you can support us on Patreon. Patreon is the reason that we're able to do this show at all. That's how I was able to hire Deanna, the producer and editor who does an amazing job. Patrons get every show a week early. There's an audio only version of all my main channel videos. There's an opportunity to have me review your music or podcast or design or photography portfolio or anything else that you might want to get my feedback on. So if that sounds interesting, you can get a link to the Patreon in the show notes. You can also sign up to our new email newsletter there. And with all that out of the way, let's get into the show. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for making time for this. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. I know you're, uh, you, you got a lot going on just like everyone else that's got kids, uh, you know, working or kids working from home, kids doing the homeschooling thing. So I appreciate you squeezing this in. Well, I guess to, to start things off, tell me how has uh, the COVID stuff changed your life? Because I know that's kind of the story for everybody in music is like, well, we had a year planned and that all fell apart. Yeah. I mean, for, for me and for Mest, I guess you would say it couldn't have come at a worst Time. I mean, I, I, was there a good time for anybody? No. But the backstory for us is that we hadn't put out an original lineup record in 15 fucking years. So to go, okay, let's do this. And we recorded the record and it had been 
about a year since we were done, but I was doing a lot of remixing and remixing because that's just the way that I am. And then the setup of it too, because um, we initially were signed um, and then I backed out of that deal. Um, we were signed to uh, El Jefe's label and then I-, I Oh, so, th- so this is gonna be, okay, I was gonna ask you about this. So this is, this is self-released now? Yeah, so yeah, I mean, we get to that in a second. So yeah, I mean, for taking 15 years to put out a, an original lineup record, because I did put out a record called Not What You Expected in 2012, something like that, 2013, which was a lot heavier as far as um, music goes. Melody-wise, it was the same as pop punk shit, um, but I was just trying, I just wanted to do a heavy record. So the fact that we waited 15 years and then put it out and then um, had a good touring year in 2019 leading up to the release, and then instantly this happens and there's just no way you can tour. and you know, for bands like us, um, we don't do radio play, but you know, like it's, it relies on touring. That's how fans hear about these new records. You know, I mean, you use social media, but that only goes so far. But yeah, so really put a fucking burden on the release of the record, which we had already released and then the shit hit. So now it's, you know, figuring out how we're going to keep this record relevant before the touring starts again, keep to expose it as much as we can you know until from what i'm hearing is like winter of 2021 is when shit's really gonna start going again so i I mean who knows right yeah who knows i mean the difference for me as far as the being home all the time shit the like i was talking to my girlfriend about it she was asking me how it's affecting me and uh, she's like are you sick of me and i go i'm not sick of you by any means i go but I go, I do get a little stressed out because my, when I'm at home and I'm not on the road, it's very similar to what I'm going through right now, except for my two outlets is I go to the movies all the time. I go to the gym every day. So that gets me out of the house. And then she has to go to work. The kids go to school. So there is that little bit of alone time and there's a little bit of uh, other life activities. And so that small amount of stuff being taken away and then you're just confined to your house. And I live in a house full of fucking people. Like we have a really big house and you know, we're a generation family inside this house, it can get a little intense. <laughs> yeah, they took away the gyms, right? Yeah, um, yeah, ever since it started. I mean, <clears throat> I think the one, because I'm out in um, uh, California, and I think ours may have opened for, no, actually, I don't think ours ever really opened. There were other ones that had opened. Yeah, strict protocol. Um, but then the people that were like, this is tyranny, you know, we need to work out. Um, who opened up the gyms under, I guess, legal ways but i I do jujitsu and we just been training people's houses yeah i mean that's i have a fucking in this room right here luckily i I have the like bowflex select attack weights and a bench and yet i have that and push-up bars and a fucking band and i honestly because i this sounds really dumb but because i changed my workout that i've been doing consistently Mm -hmm. i got in better shape than i had for the past (laughs) 10 years you know i'm fucking 40 years old but it's like you got to work with what you can. And so I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the best shape I've been in, in probably six or seven years because I've been training actually more than I used to. So, you know, well, I guess that's one question I had is, you know, you've been doing this for a very long time and you've been through a lot of ups and downs and twists and turns and stuff. Do you feel like you are probably handling this better than someone who's say 22 and you know, this is the first time they've gotten kicked in the balls? I would hope so. I mean, I tend to find the positive in negative situations just because 
you know, I have gone through some pretty, pretty crazy shit in my life. Um, and it's always perspective in my eyes, you know, and, and I, you know, you can always look back, you know, I had a fucking awesome childhood. I, I lived in the neighborhood where my cousins lived across the street and then cousins lived a couple houses down. And we had this group of huge friends, like very much like when you watch movies like Stand By Me and stuff like that, like that was my life growing up. It, it was a generation neighborhood where my dad grew up in a house across the street that my cousin now lived in and it was a dead end blocks where this crew of friends. And, and then those friends turned into friends that worked for the band and we would tour, we toured the world together, you know, so I had this you know, great years of teenage years and in my twenties. And then, um, when the band broke up, you know, I had a pretty crazy, um, crazy amount of years where when you're not being productive, you can get into a lot of shit you shouldn't be getting into. And so, you know, as far as handling what's happening right now, to me, what I started doing to keep myself sane was when I was like, when it, when I, cause I, I have, I'm claustrophobic. So like I start getting that sort of anxiety of claustrophobia where I'm like, oh, fuck, I just want to do something. I need to do something different. I cabin fever setting in. And then I sort of look back and I go, well, you know what, when the shit is over in like a year and a half and I am really busy and I don't have the time to sit around and do nothing but watch movies and hang out with the kids and go on walks with the family and the things that we're doing collectively right now to keep ourselves sane and to the things that we're doing. I know that in a year from now, when everybody goes back to work and goes to school, that's not going to be happening. So instead of freaking out, learning to live in the now is something that I've definitely learned to do in an older age, I guess. Yeah. Um, I always said I was doing it when I was younger, but I wasn't, especially being in the business. Your, your life is planned three to six months to 12 months ahead. So you're always looking forward to that. So, and you need that too for the safety net of when am I going to work again? When am I going to make money? Being able just to go, fuck, my, things always work themselves out. So yep. instead of worrying so much about when is this going to end, it's just going, what can we do to make this time better? You know, I wonder how many like young kids like yours who are maybe a little bit too young to totally understand what's happening are going to look at back at this when they're older and be like, man, that was actually really cool that I got to spend a year with my parents at home. Yeah. My kid is, um, he's a fucking daddy's boy. So he loves not having to go to school. We call it coronavirus school. And whenever I'm like, you know, when this is over with, you got to go back to school again. And he always pulls it, but daddy, then I'm never going to see you again. And I'm like, no, you won't see me for three hours. And then I'll come pick you up. And he just gets sad because he doesn't want to be away from me. And I'm like, you'll be fine. Like, so now it's like, fuck, when this does open up again, and he's able to go back to school. I'm going to, I know I'm going to have a, a couple weeks of the drop loss will be a little hard, but yeah, I'm sure. Well, you know, I think you just, uh, you roll with the punches. So speaking of age, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were like 18 when you put out your very first album for Mast, right? Yeah, well, I was 18 when we put our, our first um, DIY record. Yeah. And I was 19, 20 when we put out our first uh, record we did with Feldman. So I don't know anybody very well. I guess I know a couple of people, but you are part of the major label system, which is something I don't know anything about. And I can't imagine being thrown into that at, you know, 19 or 20 years old back then when it was like the peak of that. What was that like for you? Here's the thing. So that was one of the, I don't want to say one of the downfalls by any means, because um, I'm always grateful for the situations that have happened. But one thing that, did happen because there was still that concept even back in that day where 
you know, Victory had their slogan of like, your bands, your music, you know, but then every single band on the label tried to sue them. He ripped out their <laughs> right. band. So like, you know, obviously it wasn't their music or any, you know, but it was good marketing. They made the kids feel like that was their bands, you know? And then drive through, if you were part of drive through records, you were part of a bought in audience, you know what I mean? Um, so for us, we were just sort of this band that was on Maverick Records, Madonna's label, like, oh, it's a major label. Technically, it was an independent label with a lot of money. It was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. You know, it was cool because the people that, Guy Siri, who's uh, I think Madonna's manager now, um, he was the vice president, he signed us. Um, so he was our A&R guy. And there was good things to that and bad things to that. You know, an A&R guy is essentially your manager at a label. So when your manager wants something done, he goes to the A&R guy, the A&R guy fights the label to get it done. It's get interesting you use the words fight the label, which I think kind of tells you something. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, everybody has their, you know, when you're dealing with, anybody that gets, you know, when you're dealing with major labels and people in there and each department, they all want what they want, even if the band may know what's best. And they so, don't give a shit whether, you know, the other department is successful or not because they've got their department to worry about. Right. So, you know, having those individual fights, you know, it didn't happen that often, but, you know, for us, it was if we wanted something done and Gao Seri said yes, it happened because he was the fucking vice president of the label or president of the label. If we didn't want it done or he didn't want it done, there was nobody to fight for us within the label. He was the end all, you know. Um, but for the most part, they always treated us well. They always backed us. They never, you know, there was never ever a time where they told us how to act, what to do, how to look. We made all those decisions. They were like, we like you guys for who you are, be yourselves and we'll put out your records. So it wasn't the typical major label thing that you always hear about the horror stories of like, you know, them telling you what songs to put out, what songs to, you know, that type of shit. How common is that? I mean, because you're friends with a lot of the people in the bands that have been talked about in that way. How common is that? Because, you know, in the DIY world, I don't really think that happens too much in like the indie world. Does that um, happen in the majors? Yeah, I mean, it will when, especially when you get some of these major label people that, that work in a, not going to say any bands or anything like that, but, you know, when you have a label that puts out uh, like every genre of music, this is back in the day too. Yeah. Something's working because they did something a certain way with a certain act, with a certain marketing way, it's not going to fucking work for another mm -hmm. band, but they think, well, I made up, I did this, so this is going to work for you too. This worked for Mandy Moore and it's going to work for you too. Right. And so, you know, I know bands have definitely gone through that where it was just like, you know, you can't market. Marketing is the biggest thing for bands, target marketing. And, you know, the kid that bought the Mandy Moore records, not going to buy the pop punk record, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, bands definitely went through that. But again, you said, you know, does this happen on indie labels? And I've heard fucking horror stories from indie labels too, you know, because those are people that are, I guess, more closely related to the scene also. So technically, I think maybe their shit's coming more from a passion side than what they truly believe in. But sometimes bands don't want what they're doing. And then, you know, there's also the concept of how much money is the label going to spend and in return, that's all recoupable. So how long does it take for the right. band to make money and how long can they survive? Um, I also take the band's word with a grain of salt because sometimes bands have a little distorted view of reality. You know, if you ask the person who runs the label, they're like, well, yeah, but what they didn't tell you is that I gave them 40 grand for a video and they spent five on the video and then pocketed the other 35. Right. You know, so there's, you know, there's, there's two sides to the story and I would encourage people not to trust everything that a band says as the gospel truth. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's, and then, you know, being responsible for your own decisions, 
that you make too is, I mean, I look back and I think about the money that, that was spent on some of our marketing and our videos. And it was a fucking waste of money. You know, like why we were doing music videos before the single was working at radio makes zero fucking sense. You're Especially not be back then when videos cost like six, seven figures. We were, I think we spent, I don't even, dude, this is embarrassing. Close to a quarter of a million on our first, on our first two videos each, not, you know, total. So about half a million dollars. Then we lowered it down a little bit. And I still think we spent close to $150,000 on the, on the two videos that we released on um, photographs. And now, dude, I don't even want to say how much we shoot music videos for, but I'll send you the, the new one that we're going to release. And, and I, I don't know if you've seen Masquerade yet, but like when we released it to Alternative Press first and we did a little write-up with them and they were like, you know, this is crazy. You know, this big budget video, you must be trying to really get this message across this and that. And I was like, I didn't want to tell him like, fuck, that wasn't a big budget. Yeah. I, you know, I, I did everything in the video. I rented one small spot, did all the fucking, you know, I dressed the whole room for the, all the masquerade shots. I shot all the other scenes in my house and, you know, like used a friend, directed it with them. And, but nowadays you can, you know, looking back on that, it's like fucking so much money was wasted because, well, directors were a lot of money back then too, a name. Um, but I'm like, what if we just didn't spend that quarter of a million dollars on a music video and we spent that on fucking, you know, marketing and getting the music out there to kids, you know, on the streets. There was still street shit going on at the time, street marketing. And do you really need to pay somebody hundreds of dollars to stand there holding a fucking power cable all day? Right, the catering and the like, the, I mean, we had semi-trucks and semi-trucks and just, I remember standing there during the fucking Cadillac video at the end of, at the, end of the night and looking at, we had a parking lot in uh, El Segundo, like by the beach. And we had like two semi-trucks and all this shit. And I'm just sitting there and I absorbed it. Like I appreciated it. You know, it was a yeah. moment where I was like, this was, this is all for me. Like, this is insane. You know, glad I got to experience it. Was it a waste of money? Fucking probably, you know, it's a good video though, on the other hand, and that's a popular song and you know, yeah, I mean, the video got trashed too. The actual video that we wanted to do, by the way, ended up winning the treatment that we got sent ended up winning MTV awards. Um, it was, I want to say that maybe it was Daft Punk. Do you remember the video where the guy had the big nose on his head? I don't think and I ever he, saw that. He went walking around, he did all this cool shit, he break dance and stuff. It ended up winning an MTV award. So the guy that wrote the treatment first, uh, Marco Siega was his name. He still oh, did, okay. the, yeah. did the Cadillac video. He had this concept of that werewolf that was in the fucking video going around and doing all these cool different things while like we're in all different scenes, just like from skateboarding to riding bikes to breakdancing, like all this shit, just where it's like this random character, you know? And we thought it was cool and funny, you know, like it made sense and it got shut down. And then we were like, no, we really want to fucking do this. So that was, as, that was as close to it as we could throw it together like a week before. And then Marcos was still like, I have this great idea for a video. So then he got the treatment to, I believe it was Daft Punk. And of course it won music awards not that it would have won awards with us and maybe you know in the long run it was good for him that right didn't do it with us well how much of the stuff that you're do so you're you're doing this stuff kind of intelligently now with kind of the benefit of experience and stuff like that and you know it's easy to look back and be like oh man this was a waste or we we fucked that up but on the other hand how much of like what you're doing now is because you saw how things were done through that like big major label system kind of lens and you learned the template for how to do it. And now you're just implementing it yourself. Right. So there's, 
there is that stuff you learn from, but then I think the bigger picture of it now is how the industry has changed mm-hmm. and adapting to what things are now. But I also have that history of knowing, well, this didn't even work when, you know, it's sort of taking the concept of the budgets and lowering the budget drastically and going, now that we have, we have even less to spend, what worked back then, what didn't, what's going to work now because things are different and just sort of adapting as things go on. I mean, I'm still, for me being fucking 40 years old, man, and not really wanting to be the social media guy, but learning, like I, I watch you and I see what you've done with your shit. And like, dude, I'm you, 42. Like learning how, like watching people like you. And like, I, I mean, I watched that, the dude Gary Vee, which I'm sure you know who he is. Yeah. I remember one, one thing he had said uh, in a thing where whether you have like nine followers or a million followers, it's about the content that you put out, making sure that it's important every time that it reaches those people. Not about how many different things you release, just making sure that, you know. Um, so that's always the one thing that's stuck inside of me. But then, I, you know, I have friends that um, tend to get on their socials and post shit nonstop of shit that's just not entertaining to where at yep. some point, like, you don't really want, it's just like, it's the same shit every day. It's like, what, how is this engaging? What is this? So I try to avoid that as much as possible. But the, what I run into is that I don't engage enough. Like, I, the other day, made a video because my mustache is disgusting. <laughs> and I looked at the numbers of it, and because they have, like, view insights and shit. And I don't ever really ever check that shit, and I checked it. And it had, like, 2,000 views from um, Explorer feed. Uh-huh. So people that didn't follow me randomly clicked on it and saw that and went to my page. And it's, like, just from a stupid, you know what I mean? And it's, yep. like, realizing to use those tools is very important. And I'm sort of learning how to, you know, how to be okay with it. I guess more than anything. Um, but yeah, when it comes to, to, you know, I have to do everything now with the band. I'm the manager, the label we do. We did send a distribution deal with the orchard. So I guess Sam Fruner over there helps me out with decisions and stuff because right as the record was about to come out, uh, the guy who was managing me decided to leave the business. He still helps me out to a great friend. Like I'm like, like, he's like, I'm not going to leave you high and dry out can search for somebody else and I'll be around. But, um, so, it's just making, you know, trying to make all these decisions of, especially before this pre-COVID too, when it was like, okay, well, obviously we're going to tour. We're going to figure out when we're going to release this, this, and this. And then it was like, okay, wipe the fucking drawing board, start over. Let's figure this shit out. I got to figure out, you know, where to spend money properly so that it's getting the engagement and, and the shit that the band needs and making sure that it's dollars well spent. There's a saying you have to spend money to make money. You know, that doesn't mean initially you're going to make money right away. But if all of a sudden by next year, each video has got a quarter of a million or a million spins on them and stuff. And then I can go to other booking agents and go, hey, you know, this is what we've done in the past year and a half just internally through the Internet promoting this record. We haven't toured on it yet. We have these new songs about to come out. You know, I have to go and pitch everything, like literally do fucking everything. So being through it all, all those years has sort of, made me able to understand every aspect of the business. Do I like doing it all by myself? Fuck. No. <laughs> but um, on the other hand, you because it's because it's your band, your name on it and it's your money, you're going to spend that 5 grand way smarter than somebody at the label who's just spending someone else's money, which ultimately is your money because like you said you got to recoup. Right. So you're you're I you know as much as it's a pain in the ass, I 
the flip side of that is I think you're going to make better decisions because you care more than those people ever did. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very hesitant too. you know, you make sure that it's like, is this going to work? So like, you know, we're doing a quick YouTube campaign and then it's just like, just to get the numbers up on the video to get it exposed more because we want to release a new one. Now we're going to spend a little bit of money, see what it does. And if it worked, the angle that we took, spend a little bit more money, you know? So it's just doing things in increments and just figuring out what works and what doesn't work without blowing your load all in one fucking shot, you know? As so. opposed to the old days where they might spend a couple hundred grand on print ads. Right. Without really having any, there's no way to know whether those were actually helpful or not. Right. And then you also have, you know, I mean, back in, this is just getting back into the label issue, but they always have two sets of books. So, right. you know, you're getting charged and what they actually spent. Right. Plus it was a tax write off, you know, so, but yeah, man, it's just, it's a really hard business to be in. Like I am still searching for a manager or even just uh, like, cause we don't even have a booking agent. All the tours that we did last year was reaching out to people and my manager at the time reaching out and it's just going, Hey, friends, you know, and luckily we had a good touring year last year, a good setup for the record. Um, but it definitely helps to have those people because it can be overwhelming, especially when, like you said, I have a six year old kid. So like there's, I can only spread myself so thin before it's, it becomes a little too much. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks With Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all <laughs> and my name's bob and my name's patrick and usually we're joined by tom tom's the best tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work but we talk about decidedly not so grown-up things like hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like so that could be the latest shows uh revisiting classic material talking about the new classics um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like, 
dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use HyperFollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Well, I guess my question would be, I'm trying to think of the right way to say it because I don't want it to sound shitty, but like, why still do music? I mean, you're a, you're a smart guy. You can communicate with people. You could go do any number of things. What you keeps know, you in the business if it's that tough? That is a good question. <laughs> and that thought has come up many times over the past, I would say, nine months or so. But I have, a, you know, I have a buddy of mine who's an actor and he's a, he's a struggling actor. He's been in some things like when he first started out, he's in this Nickelodeon stuff and like on this three part full series movie and stuff like that. And he's been in little roles here and he's been in a lot of shit. But it's, you know, that business is a struggling business, too. And so I'm always encouraging him because he's a little bit younger. And I'm like, dude, you know, the only people I know that fail in these type of businesses are the people that stop doing it, that stop working. It takes one opportunity, one big show for you, and then your name's out there and you can keep working. I go, you don't have to be an A-list actor to be successful by any means. You know, you can, same thing with musicians, you don't have mm -hmm. to be, you know, the band selling out the fucking amphitheaters to be successful. And he actually wrote me the other day, I, I become all my friends, therapists, I swear to God, whether it's relationships or just friends. You and should shit. start invoicing him. Dr. Tony, here's your invoice. You get a little bit of that money. But I, you know, and it's good that when I give this advice to people, I'm also giving advice to myself, I realize. And I just said, you know, if, if you went and got a normal job and got a girlfriend and had a family, and because, you know, that was one of the things he's like, I just want to settle down and have a family. And I said, once you get all that and you're not doing what you want to do, you're going to end up still not being happy because who you are is an entertainer. You want to do that. That is at the core of who you are. And for me, I've been playing music and doing this. I mean, first band, I was seven years old, you know, so... And I've been in, we started mess when I was 15. For me to not play music and to write music and, and to do this would make, it would just literally not be me. And I don't think I would genuinely ever be happy doing anything else. I have friends that work in so many different fields that are like, dude, you want a job? Come on out. That may, I can make probably more money than I'm currently making at least. But at the end of the day, it's like, I'd rather be happy and survive than not be doing this and have a little bit of extra money in the bank, you know? Like maybe in 10 years I'll stop. I can't see myself not playing Well, some either. people are just kind of, I mean, well, we all kind of have our own natural lane. Like there's some people where, you know, they really want to do music, but you can kind of tell immediately, like you just don't really have what it takes. Like you're not meant to do this. And there's other people where it's like, 
you're clearly meant to do this. And right. you can't change that. You know, I think about this all the time for myself. Like what I do is way more like risky and whatnot than other paths I could take. And sometimes I'm like kicking myself, like, why didn't I just go get a job at Microsoft or Google or something and make more money and blah, blah, blah. But I'm just not that person. I'm not meant to be a big company employee because I tried that for a while and I hated it. I'm just not meant to be that person. And so I think there's a lot to be said for always asking yourself the question of like, is this what I'm meant to do? But at the same time, also recognizing it's like, well, this is who I'm meant to be, you know, for better or for worse, this is my thing. Yeah. And I think like you were saying, a lot of those people too, that say they want to do music or they want to do something, you see the drive in them. And if it's not really there, it's like, do they really want to do it? Or they just want it because they go, oh, I can be famous and I can make money, you know, or just they're people that I think will accept the normal life and mm -hmm. be, you know, okay, I'll make money. This will make me happy. It's okay. But then people that have that drive and really want to be in the entertainment business and like entertaining and that's who they are, they're not going to be happy unless they're doing it. And whether that means making less money and it being a little harder to survive, but when they're able to live in that moment, like that's who that makes us who we are and it makes us happy, it makes us complete as a person. So like, I mean, there's the give and take, but um, yeah, I mean, I just couldn't, I can't see myself doing anything else. I don't know, it's, it, this has been who I, you know, this is who I've been since I was fucking seven years old. To be honest. Right. So well, you clearly have like a, you know, pretty like mature, aware kind of perspective on things when you're around people, you know, bands that are like in their twenties or something like that, do you feel like a peer to them now? Or do you feel different? Like when I'm around those people now, it's not like I don't like them or something like that, but I definitely don't feel like I'm their peer anymore. If that makes sense. Yeah, well, I, I go with the uncle Tony a lot. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I accept that. Um, I accept that name, uh, but I'm always, when talking to younger vans, like when I ask for advice, I'm always about giving them my perspective. And like, this is, you, you have your path and you're going to do what you want to do, but this is what you remember. Like, who was it? This is a band uh, broadside. Two of the kids came out and toured with me once. And when they were going through a lot of shit, they would call me up and constantly ask me questions. What about that? And I would go, this is what you need to say. This is what you need to ask your manager. This is what you need to have your manager asking the label, you know, like, just because I've gone through it. So having some actual experience is what these kids are looking for. I mean, but I, I was even doing that. I always wanted, I always wish for the best for everybody, even in bands like success and shit like that. I, it's great. Like I don't ever, I'm never an envious person. Like it's fucking great when there's somebody that you've been counterparts with and then the band blows up or whatever. Like it's great. There was a band, Matchbook Romance. Um, I remember that. Yeah. We had on tour um, back in, Oh four, oh three. Um, I'm trying to think who was on that tour. If it was Matchbook Romance, Dan My Point, Fall Out Boy, um, and we were headlining. And um, Matchbook Romance, it was one of their first tours. And I listened to the record, and I fucking loved their record. Became good friends with the guys. I was, you know, like we'd have them on the bus every day and hanging out. And it was, we were always the band that liked to bond with the other bands, anyway. So it was like, yeah, if I could come up, have some drinks, hang out. And I would watch the show every night and you could tell that they were a new band with their live show. And I didn't want that to get lost. I didn't want the, the how good the music was to get lost in the performance, the, because they were just new. Meaning and a little rough around the edges or? 
they, they played great, but it was the, they didn't understand the concept of a show. Going Got from it. the song, interludes, three sets, small break, talking while somebody else is tuning, that type of shit. Yep. They would just randomly, if somebody had the tune, it would just be silent on stage. Like a high school, watching a high school sort of yep. uh, talent show. Um, and so I remember I was sitting on the bus with them one day and I said, hey, I'm not trying to be a dick. I go, I fucking love you guys. So this is my input. So I just told them everything that I thought they should do to make their show better. And I, you know, I sort of knew their set and I said, in between this song, you know, the drummer was great. I'm like, you could be playing some drum stuff so it's not silent while these guys are tuning. I said, don't all turn around and tune at the same time. I go, that's your back's turned to the crowd. Like you tune on this song, you two figure out where and sort of organize their show for them. And you know, that was all that was said. We just, I just left it at that, you know, and carried on with the tour. And it was probably three, four years ago, something like that. I was at Warp Tour and I saw Ryan, the bassist. We, you know, stayed friends with all the guys. And he came up to me and we were just talking and bullshitting. And I think he was driving for one of the bands. And he goes, you know, dude, one of the coolest things that you ever did. And he told me the story back. And I was like, oh, fuck, I did do that. And he was like, dude, that was the coolest thing to us because you gave a shit. You were in a headlining band. You tried to make our show better. And, you know, and then by the end of it, you know, they were fucking great. And they eventually headline. And I think just giving people your knowledge when it's coming from a caring perspective is the right thing to do, you know, no matter what the situation is in life. Yeah, I, I, I talk to a lot of these like emo rappers that are like, you know, I call them kids, that's how old I am. Cause, but a lot of them are like 19, 20 years old. Yeah. And uh, it's an interesting feeling where like, I mean, in theory, I could be their dad, you know, <laughs> that much, they're like true. half my age. And, uh, but I don't, you know, I don't feel old, but I also don't want to be the guy that doesn't recognize that age difference, you know, and that's just kind of an interesting feeling for me at this point. Yeah, I definitely go through that too because I I forget that I'm like literally forget that I'm 40 years old. So like when I'm talking to my counterparts that are not in the music business and I see like people that are my age that look my age, I it, I think they're so old. And then I forget mm -hmm. like fuck, I I'm the same age as that motherfucker. Like it's it's a really weird thing and then I hang out, you know, the guys in their early 20s and that's more of my related bill. Like I'm still there in that world with them. So it is a mindfuck to be, you know, to be this age and to, to play that middle thing of like, okay, I'm not, don't feel like that person and I'm not that young, so I'm not that person. It's a, it's a weird thing. And I've always had an issue with getting older and, to, and this dumb as it sounds until it finally hit me one time. And I don't, this sounds ridiculous, but when I finally realized that I'm not the only one getting older, that everybody around me was getting older with me. So it's not as if I was getting older and the world staying the same. All my friends were doing it, so we were just growing old together. Like that literally took a weight off my shoulders, but I just, I had to put it in perspective, I guess, where I was like, I'm not the only one getting fucking old. Like, but trust me, man, I, I hate, I don't want to get any older, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, just, can we just stop this thing right now? Like enough's enough, or get it. Uh, well, I had a, a really specific question because I've, I've always thought that you were a really strong or that, that Mest had really strong songs. And I thought at one point, you know, because you guys worked with Feldman and stuff, and I thought at one point, oh, they're just one of these bands where, you know, some producer wrote everything for them. But I looked up the songwriting credits and, you know, your sound has stayed the same all these years. So I was like, all right, I guess John didn't write everything for him. And I think a lot of people don't know that that was the case, I think, especially during that era. Can you kind of talk about that and like whether that's ever been a conversation or how your, how your feelings are on that? There is definitely, I've definitely dealt with the rumors that John Feldman wrote our songs, which is funny because if you listen to our 
very first DIY record. There's two songs from our DIY record that made it to our first major label record, and you can hear them, and it's, you know, there's barely any change. He produced totally. songs, um, but the songs, the melodies, the words, you know, stuff like that are all the same. Um, John's job as a producer was to cut the fat off of a song. You know, I was a kid that's just writing songs, and if a fucking interlude's way too long, or the bridge is way too, there's a musical part, then a singing part, and by the end of the fucking, you know, pop punk song, you're at four minutes, it's like there's some fat in there that can be trimmed. And, you know, over the years, that was a simple thing to learn, where then once you learn, you know, like, like I always say, people ask, like, would you ever do another record with John? I don't know. I mean, it would, there'd be nothing new that I could learn from him because we did four records with him. So, I mean, I pretty much went to college for producing John Feldman, you know, like. Could do a lot um, worse than that. Yeah. Um, but it's like, uh, we dealt with those rumors. I didn't really give a shit because I knew that we were writing the songs. Um, you know, and then I go back and I listen to the records every once in a while. And, you know, people ask, what's your favorite record? What's your favorite song? And, and I always say, it's, it's like asking who your favorite kid is. And she's like, like you, you know, like you appreciate each record and each song for what they are, for whatever the story was, whatever. And even like the, the record, Now What You Expected, which I did on my own um, without the original guys. And I listened to it the other day and I was like, fuck, this is like a real, I put it out on my own, you know, like I released it in Japan and put it out there on my own. And I go back and listen to the record and it was, I'm like, fuck, this is a rad record. I'm proud of that. I guarantee 90% of Mets fans don't even know exists. Uh, yeah. I, I actually was just listening to it this morning for the first time. I didn't know it existed. And, you know, I've been a fan of the band for 15, 20 years and yeah. uh, I didn't know that. And I was like, this is actually pretty cool. Like maybe it could use a better recording, but it's, a, it's actually a really but, cool, like different kind of record. Yeah. It's definitely has the, um, I was just, you know, like my roommate was Craig from Escape the Fate at the time. So I was listening to all these heavy bands that he was showing me and shit like that. And I've always liked heavy music. And I'm like, well, Photographs was this really soft, soft record for us. Dark record, but soft musically, as far as I was concerned. And I was like, it'd be fun just to do something. I'm not on a label. It doesn't matter. Like, I can do whatever I want. So I started writing songs. And I was like, melody-wise, it was a mess record. Music-wise, it was definitely a lot heavier. But I was like, fuck it. But I don't know. I mean, I love our records. I think there is progression in each record we maintain our sound in each record, but there's progression within songwriting. And, and, and then the other thing that I've always liked that we did was, you know, I have a lot of different influences, not just punk rock music. So I've always made it, made sure to put, you know, two or three songs on a record that literally are like, why the fuck is this on the record? Whether it be a full pop song or, you know, we did like an acoustic song one, a full reggae song, just anything to, to show that we're not just a fucking, you know, granted love Pennywise, but you know, front sure. to back Pennywise record is a Pennywise record, you know? And I never wanted to be just that band where it's like a straight pop punk, just straight punk rock, you know, all the way through. So I always say like, I'd put our record up against any other, all the bands that played within our era and our genre, you know, because we tried to do something different and we tried to progress and tried to show our other influences and not just write, you know, obviously there's the pop punk on there and that's the 80% of the record, but, you know to do something different musically there's that through line of to me like the vocal melodies are the through line between everything and that's how you can kind of you know feel your fingerprint on everything right right that's i mean that's a good point because i always say realistically a good song can be played in any genre of music and it's going to sound fucking good that's what mm -hmm. a good song is so you know the point when I'm writing songs is I want to make sure when I get to that chorus and I'm singing that chorus that I'm like, okay, this works. Somebody hears this and they're going to sing along to it the next time that they hear it. 
And then after I have that, then I can fuck around with the music and do what I want and see how it fits, see what tempo fits, you know? That's when you start changing shit up and figure, fuck, I have five songs on a record that have the same feel, but I like the melody of the song, so let's fuck with the music and make it somehow different so that it can still be on the record because the melody's there, but make sure the music's different so it's not just blending in, you know? Yeah, I think arrangement is a tool that not a lot of people in our kind of genres think about, you know, that like you said... I mean, that's why all those like punk cover comps did so well because right. those pop songs, you could turn those into a metal song or a reggae song or, you know, a Disney song and th- they would work because they're great melodies. Right. And that's, I think, uh, we were the, I think we were sort of the era that got a lot of shit where it was like the, because the punk rock right before us, the generation with the No Effects, Bad Religion, Rancid, Green Day. Um, you know, I mean, Green Day even got a lot of shit, let's be honest. Um, but, then we came around and those were all of my influences. I listened to like oi music and shit growing up, like the class, social distortion when I was 11 years old. Uh, and then got introduced to the bad religion, no effects, all that shit. So those were my influences. And then to be thrown into this category because hot topic was really big to be like, Oh, they're a mall pop punk band. It's like, you have no idea about my neighborhood, my roots, <laughs> where I came from. And all of a sudden you're being class. You know what I mean? But that's what people do is they just group shit together they give it a name and you know like you you're pigeon held to that shit but um you know like when we when we did 2003 warped Tour with rancid they listened to our self-titled record and loved it tim actually like ended up calling me up on my cell phone and we wanted him to direct one of the videos and he was calling up literally just to apologize because he didn't have time to do it and to tell me that he loves the record and i'm like you know 2002 uh like 22 years old like talking to him from rancid and he's telling me like you know what i mean and i'm just like one of the all-time greats yeah and i thought like i almost didn't answer the call i remember my blue t-mobile phone it said private so i'm like <laughs> the fuck and then he's talking real quiet the way tim talks and i'm just like not wanting to i'm like who what and then finally finally when he says who it is it all like clicked but we became cool with those guys and the 03 warp tour and they always stood up for us you know and i remember we're listening to them on the radio in atlanta and they let lars play three songs that he could pick and so he picked the clash because they were before them then them and then us which was the new generation in his eyes coming up you know and they always stood up for us you could read all the interviews they were in that during that year and it was like he got he came and hung out with me in chicago and he got to see my friends and where i came from you know and like he saw the punkers and the skins and the people that were around so he realized that we were a punk rock band granted you know the label may have put out some cheesy fucking photos of us and gave us that 2000, early 2000 pop right. But, you know, we were what we were, you know? And so once you have, once you have the, I guess, um, once you become pairs with the people you look up to, nobody else's opinion. Right. Matters, you know, that's real. Which is why I think it's so sad when I see people, you know, kind of do the same thing to the generation behind them. It's like they want to pull up the ladder and, you know, be the, be the old man uh, shitting on the next generation coming up behind him. Right. And I've never, I've never done that. I always appreciate the kids that are, that one, let's be real. When there's, so pop punk ends in the early 2000s, 2005, six to, I don't know, 2010, 2011, when it just, every kid had the black hair and, you know, mm-hmm. it was just a different fucking thing. Pop punk became a dirty word. Just like ska became a dirty word after the late 90s. Right. And it was just not accepted. It wasn't cool anymore, no matter what. 
And then when these other kids start coming out and they're wearing these long big t-shirts and short shorts and they're singing fast, you know, pop punk of their version, let's be real about it. If that, when that becomes popular, the kids that are listening to the music are going to want to know where those bands got their influences from. So that does come back and help out bands like us. The same way when we were putting out our records, fans that were 14 to 20 years old listening to Mess are going to watch an interview and go, who influenced you? And then in bands that I named, they're going to go back and check out those records. So I always, it's always a good thing, man. It keeps the fucking music going. It keeps you able to tour. It gives you generation fans, you know, like that's the point of it. And it's just fucking music. Let's be honest. It's just, it's not life and death. <laughs> right. If you, if you listen to it and you like it, you like it. If you don't, you fucking don't listen to it. You know, don't listen simple. to it. Yeah. All right. Well, I got to let you go because my wife has a uh, work call in a couple minutes here. But uh, before I do that, where can people find the records, videos, any of that stuff? If they enjoyed this conversation, what should they check out? Um, okay. So we have our current video. You can look it up. Just type in Mast M-E-S-T and Masquerade. That'll come up. Um, we have a new video coming out, I'd say, in about four to six weeks, given uh, whenever we decide to release it. Um, the new record, you can find it on all the digital sites, iTunes, all that shit. And then we will be putting up, um, now that the Kickstarter stuff is done, I have a bunch of records from the, what is it? We have like an original cover, um, alternative cover, and then alternative um, vinyl, actual different colored vinyl. Um, those will be up on the website, which is merchlimited.mast, probably. Let me see if I can well, type we'll, this. We'll, we'll find it and I'll link it in the show notes. So. Perfect. Don't, don't listen to these old men mumbling. Just click the link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and check out the new record. And uh, thanks again for doing interview, man. I'm a big fan. So I appreciate it. Cool. Same to you. All right. And now let's answer a few questions. If you have a question that you would like me to answer at the end of my next podcast, just send me a DM or drop it in the comments or whatever. You know where to find me. So let's get into a couple. From Joe Skoda, what happened to the Straight to Your Face in the intro music? Uh, I was using the Hate Breed song Straight to Your Face up until, I don't know, it's probably been over a year now. And I stopped using it because I don't own the copyright to it. And I actually did reach out to some people to try to license it, but for various reasons, I was not able to do it. I would have been happy to pay, but in that case, it was actually difficult to find out who owns the publishing for it. So if you want to license a song, you can just like look up, you know, Google, like whatever publishing, and you'll usually be able to find it. Uh, and then you just have to negotiate a deal with whoever it is. Like, uh, for example, you know, I would have probably paid $500 or $1,000 to be able to use that in my intro forever. Uh, but I was not able to find anybody who definitively owned the publishing. And, you know, that can happen. Like, sometimes if things have changed hands a bunch of times, you know, maybe, maybe it was part of some big package deal of IP that they bought and, you know, the current owner of it just bought it as sort of one of the many things that were in that package and they're not even really aware that they have it. So that can be the case sometimes. And uh, so I figured I should just change it because without a license, it is possible that somebody could like copyright claim my whole channel or any video that uses that. I think if that happened, then I would at least know who owned it and I would be able to like reach out to him and figure it out. But 
in any case, I figured I should play it safe uh, and remove that unless I had a license. So I had somebody named Anthony Potenza write me a kind of sound-alike version of it. Like, you know, in car commercials, like they can't actually use Thunderstruck. So they make somebody write a song that goes, dun dun and you're like, oh, yeah, I think that's supposed to be Thunderstruck, but it's different enough that they can't get sued. So that's what I did. Next one from Misty Meredith. Can you recommend any apps or platforms that are best for scheduling posts in advance across multiple social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and Pinterest, for instance? There's quite a few that do this. The one that I like is called Buffer. I'm not sure if it supports Snapchat. I don't know if Snapchat's API even allows automation, but it might. There's lots of other ones like Hootsuite is one. Later.com is another. Well, there's free plans of all these, but uh, there's also... In a lot of these applications, for example, Facebook and Instagram, if you go to Facebook Creator Studio, uh, you may not realize this because they don't do a very good job of talking about it, but you can schedule posts from there in Facebook's native interface for free. But these programs like Buffer and Later and Hootsuite and stuff like that will allow you to automatically post the same thing to all these platforms at once. So let's say I took a picture of my cat and I wanted to post it on all my social media platforms on Monday at 9 a.m. with the same caption. I could do that in any one of these applications, you know, just by uploading it there and you just check which boxes you want it to go into and you're done. So yeah, I mean, they're all pretty good. I don't think that there's a huge difference between any of them, to be honest. You know, the main difference I would say is the analytics that are available. For example, the reason I like Buffer is because it will tell you uh, after the fact, like which post performed the best and what time of day is best to post and blah, blah, blah. But uh, even then, all these platforms or all these applications are limited by the API. And if any of you are, you know, software engineers, you'll know what an API is, application programming interface. So that's basically um, what does, say, Instagram allow you as the developer of an application to pull out, you know, what, what uh, the API is the way that... Um, a platform allows you, the developer, to communicate with that platform. And within that, there's various different parameters that you can, you know, you can query to, for example, ask how many posts a given, uh, how many likes a given Instagram post got. Um, you can do a bunch of stuff like that. And those analytics or any of the scheduling capabilities are limited by uh, the platform's API. And so one thing that's a little bit frustrating is that you can do certain things on, for example, you know, Facebook and Instagram uh, will allow you to do certain things or give you certain kinds of analytics that other platforms won't, for example, Twitter. So all of that is to say that yes, you can use one of those uh, scheduling uh, applications and by all means do it. Um, but I do most things manually. Maybe that's stupid, but I do most things manually because I really care about those little details. I really care about making sure that my post is exactly right for each individual platform because the, the devil is in the details on that stuff. Like you see when people repost something from Instagram to Facebook and they have like at mentions and hashtags and it just, it just looks, just looks shitty. And now you can in Buffer, for example, you can version out the post for each platform. So I don't know, maybe I should do that, but I'm stupid and I just do things the hard way uh, and do everything manually. But I would recommend Buffer uh, if you're interested in something like that.
Next one from David Napier. As a graphic designer, what makes it so interesting to be both a designer and a marketer? As in, I know a lot of designers and most are really passionate about analytics and marketing. Do you think that those two fields go hand in hand more than people realize? On the inverse, I know a bunch of designers that are terrible at marketing and would rather just be the quote unquote artist and not have to worry about it. Well, I think you hit on it there. Like it really comes down to, I think your personality type and your interests. Some people, if you don't like numbers, then you're not gonna be good at marketing, especially now because you really have to be able to gather and interpret data. And if you don't like numbers, then that's just not gonna be fun for you and you're not gonna be good at it and you're gonna struggle. And there are plenty of designers who are reasonably good at that and vice versa. There's plenty of marketers who are pretty creative. So I think that there is a lot of crossover there and it is a super powerful combination. If you are, what I'd recommend, like it's very unlikely that you're gonna be like world-class at both of those things. Um, but what is a great combination is if you're pretty good at one and really, really, really good at the other, that's a great combination. Uh, if you look up T-shaped people, that's basically the, the idea of being pretty good at a bunch of things and really, really, really good at one of them. And I think that's a great combination because uh, marketers can be kind of helpless if they uh, are if they, if they can't do anything creative at all and they're really kind of dependent on writers and designers and stuff to make the assets uh, in ads or landing pages or whatever else they're kind of helpless on the other hand uh, there's designers who just make shit uh, without really giving any thought to whether it's going to accomplish the business objectives of the program of the of the project uh, and those people are not very useful either you know you just sort of roll your eyes and it's like well i've got to twist this designer's arm uh, to make him or her care about business as usual and it's just kind of exhausting so um, i guess to answer your question there's no reason why somebody can't kind of do both of those things as an individual, like entrepreneur or at a small company. Uh, at big companies, it's a little bit of a different story. You know, big companies are very siloed. So if you're a designer, the marketing people pretty much want you to fuck off and stick to design and vice versa. If you're uh, a marketer, then the designers will tell you to fuck off and stick to marketing and let them do the design. So in that case, that that's kind of a whole other, that's a whole other question of like, how do you work with cross-functional teams at a big company, which I don't know if anybody listening to this cares about that, but it's something that I have a lot of experience with and I would be happy to talk about it if you're interested because it's a big deal. If you can be good at working on cross-functional teams, you are a very valuable person. But anyway, to answer your question, there is no reason why design and marketing can't go together. I think they should go together. Uh, and if you are interested in both of those things, then by all means, go for it. I would say just think about which one that you are naturally better at and maybe go a little bit more towards that one rather than trying to be equally good at both because I think that's probably not going to happen. Okay, next one also from David Napier. Another question. At this point, I think you'd be more likely as a musician to market a marketing solution to bands than actually become big yourself as a band. Not that I'm saying to sell snake oil, but with all the market your band, better outfits, it seems like there's got to be a market for marketers. Just got to say it one more time, market. So I think what you're saying here is... What if you were to offer marketing services to bands or to musicians? Is that an opportunity? And it's definitely an opportunity. It depends on your goals. Uh, the thing about musicians is they do not have a lot of money. So uh, you're going to work very hard 
uh, for not a lot of money if you choose to offer these services to musicians. I'm not going to say that you shouldn't do it by any means because, you know, if you want to do it and it makes you happy, like sometimes there's more important things than money. But I will say that, you know, let's say for what a band will pay you $500 for, you could get a dentist to pay you $5,000 for that same work. And, you know, is the work for the dentist going to be as creatively fulfilling? Probably not. But if you get paid 10 times more, maybe that's worth it. You know, that is something you that each of us need to decide for ourselves as like kind of there isn't always a trade off between creative fulfillment and money. But I think there oftentimes is. And it's up to each one of us to decide how we want to make that trade off. But if you choose to offer any sort of services to musicians, I would say just go into it with your eyes open. Uh, recognizing that it's probably going to be tough to make any money at it. Um, but I do think you're right. Even all of that being said, uh, it's probably a lot more likely to make money from uh, helping other bands market themselves than actually being in a band yourself. So you're not wrong there. So good idea. I would say if you're interested in it, try it. You know, what's the worst that could happen? Like maybe you decide you don't like it and you stop doing it. Why not try it? All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans... We set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of Gray Street.